This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Avail helps AECO firms better manage, organize, and navigate information faster. Visit getavail.com today. This episode of Troxel is supported by Confluence, a small conference event for AEC professionals and technology providers to discuss industry trends and ideas together. It's put on by the fine folks at Avail. You can learn more about the upcoming invite-only events during this episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Dr. Madeline Gannon. Madeline is a multidisciplinary designer blending techniques in art, design, computer science, and robotics to forge new futures for human robot relations. Also known as the Robot Whisperer, she specializes in convincing robots to do things they were never intended to do, from transforming giant industrial robots into living, breathing mechanical creatures, to taming hordes of autonomous machines to behave like a pack of animals. She believes that technology is a cultural medium and tunes her work to engage communities across science and society. Her works have been exhibited at international cultural institutions, published at academic conferences, and profiled at global media outlets, such as the BBC, The Guardian, Financial Times, The Science Channel, Wired, Fast Company, Dezine, and The Verge. Madeline is a World Economic Forum cultural leader, a former robotics and AI researcher at NVIDIA, and a former artist-in-residence at ETH Zurich, Autodesk Pier 9, and the Carnegie Mellon Studio for Creative Inquiry. She is known as one of the top 10 women in robotics industry and world's 50 most renowned women in robotics, according to Analytics Insight. Madeline holds an MARC from Florida International University and a PhD in computational design from Carnegie Mellon University. She leads Atonaton, a research studio inventing better ways to communicate with machines, where they combine the innovation of a research lab with the ingenuity of a design studio to build functional prototypes of alternative futures. They are advanced scouts for what normal may look like in 10 to 15 years. In this episode, we discuss how Madeline properly misuses technology in the most interesting way possible, the potential use of robots and machines as they relate to humans, the difference between programming robots to do a task versus creating an interaction model, aka how to talk to machines, how working with robotics has led to what Madeline describes as moving matter with our minds, her next endeavor with cable-driven robots, Madeline's work on the continuum of creating intelligent and autonomous machines, and of course, Madeline's favorite movie robot must be revealed. Buckle up, folks. This is a good one. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Dr. Madeline Gannon. Madeline, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, I'm happy to have this conversation with you because of the amazing work that you're doing with robotics. You were just telling me that you're even kind of switching gears and and learning new things, which I assume is just kind of par for the course in robotics. You're basically blazing new frontiers with human to robotic interaction. Maybe you can catch us up on how you got to where you are now, an introduction to the audience of your work and the trajectory that you've been on. Yeah, certainly. I started off in architecture. It's always exciting for me when I get a request from a podcast about AEC. I was like, oh, they still think I'm an architect. This is amazing. All right. You know, what I've been doing with robots has been, it's so fringe, but my heart, my feet are planted firmly in architecture. It, it shapes the way that I see things. It shapes the personalities that I give these machines. But basically, I built a career out of properly misusing technology in the most interesting way possible. So I started off in architecture and even my, my PhD work is actually from a school of architecture, although you would never guess, you would think it's from a robotics department. But my wander away from traditional architecture towards robotics really came through the path of computer-aided design and computer-aided manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I came out of school during the recession, the 2008 recession, mm -hmm. and there were no jobs, nothing. And so I decided to continue to study and to specialize in something. And that same time, this whole world of computational 
design was so cool. Grasshopper was just becoming a thing. All the work of some of the architects who I admired were doing parametric, gorgeous stuff, all stuff I did not know how to do. And so I decided to continue study. I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, went to Carnegie Mellon and learned how to talk to machines. And one of the amazing things about Pittsburgh is that it just so happens to be the robotics capital of North America. There's more roboticists per capita there than anywhere else in the U.S. So you go to a coffee shop and you hear people talking about like, oh, I am trying to figure out how to dispense this material for this gasket on this door. You can't quite get it. Like that's normal coffee shop talk, which is pretty wild. And so even the artists that are there are actually roboticists. And that's where I sort of found my niche. I was greatly inspired by all of the amazing work in architectural robotics being done in Europe at the ICD Stuttgart, ETH Zurich. But I was just one person, one individual in the department there that did have a big giant robot and no one knew how to use it. It was just sitting lonely in a cold, dark third sub-basement below ground. And so what was nice about that is that, you know, I knew as much as the teachers, which was basically nothing. Yeah. So out of reading a lot of PDFs over and over and over again, and sort of figuring things out through trial and error, I start to be able to use these machines. And with the secret superpower of Carnegie Mellon is programming. I sort of saw that I could fill a niche where, you know, I'm not going to build pavilions with these machines, but I can explore interaction. I can explore interfaces. I can explore how we use them in a more intuitive and engaging way. And that was a territory that took a life of its own after a while, and I'm still kind of riding that wild pony uh, into the future. So you are the robot whisperer. It's interesting to hear the way that you talk about the robot. You know, you said the, the was lonely down there in the sub-basement. And it's interesting to me to hear somebody talk about a machine like that. And I think a lot of people talk about machines like that, but not necessarily in architecture, right? You've got woodworkers and people who use CNC and, and like they're intimate with their machines that enable them to do their crafts that they do. You're very similar to that, I assume. So how do you see that? Because it is interesting to hear you talk about them that way. There's a spectrum, yeah. So, you know, you can go from appliance, your washing machine, that's just a robot. Yeah. But then you have something like your car. Maybe that's somewhere in the middle where you, it has its own personality. Maybe you give it a name. Yeah. You feel a deep connection to it. It's a part of your identity. And then on the other side of the spectrum, Maybe you have your pets, also these non-human things that you cohabitate with that you can't really talk to, but you get a lot of value from their pure existence next to you. Mm. And so I think robots sort of can occupy part of that spectrum between car and pet in a more exciting way than, you know, just doing things that are optimized and efficient and automated. It's interesting to hear you even talk about a washing machine as a robot, because I've never thought of it that way. I think of it as a machine, but yeah, robots are machines. It's like a categorical, maybe slight nuance to to all that. I've owned a lot of cars. I don't think I've ever really given my cars names. I think I've owned like 38 cars. It's a lot of cars, okay? But only two robots. And those are both what I consider robots. I've had two vacuum robots. I just recently got a new one that does the mapping and it draws straighter lines than the old one used to which is important as an architect, that, that the lines on the carpet are, are nice and aligned with, with the walls. <laughs> it is interesting to think about machines doing these tasks. And Brian Ringley has been on the podcast before, and he's doing work with Spot. Obviously, you know Brian well. And I recently heard him on a yeah. podcast talking about the utility of these machines to do things while we're sleeping, especially with the work that he's mm -hmm. doing in construction tech with Spot going out and doing site walks and scanning and bringing that data back. But the stuff that you're talking about is, again, like on a different part of that spectrum. And you're talking about human to robot interaction. And, you know, one of the projects that I've seen you posting on social media is the big KUKA. Is it a KUKA? I think the big robot with the big googly eye on it. And it is amazing how what seems kind of like a silly little thing makes it way more I don't know, what's the word, attractive? The way that you interact with it, it makes it more human or less maybe, um, I don't know, it, it just seems more approachable. Is that really the root of your work there? Is, is Because the utility of robots is unmistakable. But there is this hurdle mm -hmm. that we have to get over as humans. Everybody wants to kick the spot robot away from it and see what it does, right? Even one of the latest yeah. episodes of The Mandalorian, like where there's the drones walking by, The Mandalorian is is kicking the drones just like people 
would push on the Boston Dynamics robot and hope it doesn't turn around and kick back. Yeah, kick back. <laughs> and you're breaking down those barriers with your work in robotics. It, that, that's really what it seems like. For me, I see that we're in this amazing era of technological telekinesis, mm. right? Our technology is advancing so fast that we're reaching the point of supernatural powers. And maybe it's a framework of magical realism. Maybe it's a framework of telekinesis. But the idea is that we can move matter with our minds mm. just with mm -hmm. good software interfaces mm. with the animate machines that are roaming around us. It's interesting how quickly the technology normalizes. So, you know, you think of a washing machine, oh, I've never really thought about that as a, a robot, mm -hmm. but you call your vacuum a robot vacuum. Yeah. Right? Well, My daughter, autonomous. she's three years old. <laughs> we have a robot vacuum too, but she's going to grow up just calling it a vacuum, right? Like she'll, right. The, the distinction won't right. be there for her at all. Yeah. And we think about that yeah. too. Like there are more robots than we imagine uh, there to be mm -hmm. in general, like the Super Bowl. You know, there's robot cameras that are flying around getting those shots. Rihanna's halftime show, you know, those platforms, those were cable robots moving things up and down and all around. But as soon as it becomes normalized, we don't acknowledge it as a piece of technology anymore, which is such a beautiful part of how our brain works. Yeah. The project with the big giant googly eye was trying to take an idea to its maximal and a little bit absurd, but also recognize just the power of our brains to render life onto bare bones geometry. It's just a big two meter white circle and a one meter black circle. And as soon as it starts to move, we see this creature. It's no longer an industrial equipment, industrial infrastructure. It's now this otherworldly thing floating in front of you. And that's uh, perhaps a mm -hmm. little too pushy and uh, attracted to you. Well, maybe you can make the distinction between that and animatronics. I think a lot of people have interacted with animatronics, which maybe you would consider those robots as well. I mean, obviously, there's crazy stuff going on on like the Disney side of things, the Imagineering. You've seen the Spider-Man swinging robot that lets go of the web and does a flip. And it's incredible to watch. And even how that's kind of navigating environmental aspects in real time so that it's compensating for its flight path. And the way that people have interacted with animatronics, with expressions in facial robotics, it's getting absolutely incredible the amount of nuanced communication that happens through that. And then you've got the big googly eye and how much we can draw from, you said it's, it's kind of pushy sometimes, but you're, you're basically feeling a feeling from what it's presenting to you. And, and you're also driving that through interactions with your body language. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. What's amazing about our lower level brains, our mammalian brains, is that it receives these kind of low level frequencies that we just can't turn off. It's just our, our instinct to begin to analyze things as soon as they move. And is this, is this friend or is this foe? You know, is this going to eat me? Or should I run away? And that is, I see such an immensely potential interaction medium for working with these machines, for working with technology in general, for AI systems, robotic systems, because you can begin to pierce everyone's attention just by doing these low frequency gestures. For animatronics, a lot of times they want to do high resolution. They want to, you want to see yeah. the eyebrow move in 16 different ways and they're going for realism. And that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Disney Research is one of the leaders in the world in robotics research. They do amazing, amazing things. A lot of times because they have the most interesting problems, right? It's driven by yeah. their movies. It's driven by their theme parks. It's a really, really great place to work too. But that's not the only answer, I guess, is what I'm trying to show. There's a, a lot more accessible ways and nuanced ways to still connect people through technology in a more contextual way by doing things that are just tuned and sensitive to their environment. And maybe that's where my training as an architect comes through. I see it like you go to architecture school and the gift that you're given is a hypersensitivity to how people move through space. Mm -hmm. And learning how to talk to robots, like all of a sudden I could give them those same nuances and those same sensibilities and have them sense and respond to people in a way that 
I guess it's just a lot more lifelike and a bit more has a, a breath of consciousness that we don't yet always see in our automated systems, in our technology at all. I think we're heading in that direction. I think I'm just a little early there. For me, at least, that's a way that I would like to interface with technology where it's beginning to anticipate what I would like rather than me having to command it all the time. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to think about kids, right? I have a 17-year-old and the way that you see them mature over time, going from waiting around to be told what to do to figuring out what needs to be done and being a useful helper, right? And I think that's kind of what you're talking about is this noticing, just watching. This is another thing that I think we're getting more and more accustomed to, but maybe aren't completely aware of like our phones they're always on even though the screen is off the machine is still on and we see this in our kitchens with an alexa device hopefully nobody's alexa device just went off when i said that but they're always listening hey google <laughs> so they're always listening and they're attentive in that way because there's kind of this wake word or you know it could be emotion it could be anything this is becoming more and more prevalent even if we're not aware of it but we still expect it to work all the time and so there's that and then there's this idea of sensors in buildings iot that are always watching they're watching you know for movement they're watching for the sun hitting the glass is it coming like should i lower the shades and this kind of proactive stance of just watching and listening and measuring things as they're happening in real time so that they can proactively do something on our behalf. All of these things tie together, right? This is all, I guess what I want to know, because you said your feet are still firmly planted in architecture and the work that you're doing is with this interaction. How does that tie together? Do you have a big vision of how you see that tying together or is this you're just experimenting and figuring it out as you go? Oh, I go by feel. There is no grand vision. I tend to spend a lot of time doing research. I have these cycles where I'll do a research cycle, a production cycle, then a promotion mm -hmm. cycle. And that seems to be the rhythm of how I work. And investing a lot in research and being able to set a good North Star that becomes the heading. And then I just wander towards that. So I have confidence in the direction that I'm going, but I don't quite know where I end up. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the joy of working in research is that your job is to be an explorer. Your mm -hmm. job is to find the unknown and report back what's interesting about it. I'm writing down some notes here as I'm thinking about some of the things you're talking about here. So when you set a direction and you're heading in that direction with your latest work, you said you don't necessarily set where you're going. So what are some of the surprising things that have come up through this latest round in this latest project? So it's early days. I'm doing a new project that is trying to create open source kit for cable-driven robots. And cable-driven robots is a relatively new area of research in robotics, maybe about 10 years old, which is a really nice sweet spot because there's a lot of work already done by people that are much smarter than me in terms of control software and the fundamental technology. But there's a lot of overhead for creativity and interaction that because the community is so small, the arts and design have not yet come in to really showcase the full potential of what it can do. And so that to me is, that's when when I start to get goosebumps. It's like, okay, there's something here. There's something here. I don't know quite what it is yet, but it's going to be at least valuable to a couple different communities. And so what I'm often surprised by is how much knowledge I can find on the internet. And then on the flip side of that is also how much knowledge my friends have and balancing that with getting schooled on a brand new subject matter, coming up to speed very quickly, and then reaching out to my community of friends to, to really get deep wells of expertise to sort of get things kicked off quickly is always a, it's been a lovely way to operate in this world. This episode is brought to you by Avail. Avail is the content management system you deserve. With its beautifully simple interface, Avail makes it easy to manage, organize, find, and use your information. Designed by designers for designers and engineers, the Avail platform takes advantage of visual acuity, allowing for a visual audience to identify what they need in a couple of clicks. Avail is designed to serve any content type from any file location and allow for simple, fast deployment of your content. Plus, thanks to powerful integrations with Revit and other applications, you can seamlessly incorporate Avail into all your workflows. Say goodbye to the headache of locating and managing content and say hello to efficiency. To learn more, visit getavail.com. Avail, the information you need faster. 
What do you think the advantages or what, what do you see the potential being in cable-driven robots? So if you think about cable-driven robots are basically a big winch. It's a motorized winch, a spool of wire, a cable that you can tell it to unspool and spool back. And when you connect two of them together, now you can move in 2D. And four of them together, now you can move in 3D. And there's crazy, if you really want to get nerdy into this, uh, you can go on YouTube and look up cable-driven parallel robot, CBPR, and you'll see some that have people inside as the end effector, inside the end effector, getting whipped around the room at very high speeds, very precisely. And so what's amazing about them is that, you know, how do you do an installation with robots that fills a courtyard or an atrium or an arena? You know, that googly eye project that I did, that has the biggest robot that ABB makes. It weighs 10,000 pounds. It's 14 feet tall to its shoulder. So it can reach like, I don't know, five or six meters tall. It's like standing in front of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I can't scale up any bigger than that with that robot, you know? But all of a sudden, I just get a bigger spool with bigger cable and attach that to the same motor. And now I can span a wider area and pull bigger things and move them faster. But I think there's a lot of potential there to begin to explore large-scale immersive experiences that don't have screens, that are really about our physical world and connecting with our physical world. And again, that's also my bias as an architect, right? I want to bring all of the magic of the digital into our tangible, physical existence. Yeah, getting off of the screen into 3D space, right? I was thinking as you were talking and then you you nailed it there, right? It was like this idea of performance and maybe not just even entertainment, but I'm sure that's obviously an aspect of it. And that really gets back to even the work you're doing with the googly eye, right? It's the way that this robot moves spatially. And to get back to your earlier comment about architecture being about how people move through space and this starts to become this really interesting interaction between space and humans and machines all at the same place at the same time. I can see that just opening up new worlds for this kind of thing. A lot of people don't expect that, but I think, again, we are seeing it. We see it with Super Bowl halftime shows. We see it with the fireworks drone displays where exactly even there, that might feel like a projection on a screen but it is happening in 3D. It's like the first time that I heard that constellations are not 2D, they're 3D. And it's like, okay, that seems obvious after you say it, but until you say it, it's not obvious. It's just a projection on a screen. And so I could really see some interesting outcomes from that type of interaction and that kind of work. And it seems like you're driving or you're designing interfaces to drive these performances through human movement potentially, or you know, again, the robots are watching for us. I remember watching a video of you with the googly eye robot and using your hand to basically guide it and tell it what to do based on a gesture in space. And so there is a lot of really interesting potential there. Can you speak more to that side of things and like that interface design? I assume that's where a lot of your research actually is, is how can you start to communicate with the robot that it's not through code and it's not even through verbal communication, but it's through these gestures? Exactly. Like For me, interface is everything with the technology. Mm-hmm. And I sort of relearned that lesson lately with ChatGPT coming out, mm-hmm. right? So you have a large language model. That was about a year old and the technologists developing it were so underwhelmed with its performance because they had the latest and greatest yet to come. But all of a sudden you have a good interface that lots of people can use and it takes the world by storm. Mm-hmm. That's the same lesson that the iPhone taught too. all right. existing technology, but put into stable hardware with good software interfaces everything. And we haven't quite reached that yet with robotics. And we also think of robots as these individual things, like these individual entities, like the Boston Dynamics spot robot or like an industrial robot arm. But we're at a potential where we can begin to think about whole building systems as robots. We can think about large areas that are aware of what we're doing. You know, when you can begin to sense and respond and manipulate the world, that's a robotic system. And it may not need to have a physical presence that we normally think of as an individual entity, right? It could be something that we're already amongst us and already inside us that has a bit more ephemeral physical form. I see my role as in the research that I do as reaching towards the pragmatic and uncovering the poetic. And so the mediums that I work with are very, very pragmatic. They're engineering platforms, both in the software and the hardware. And my role is to discover all the good ideas that were left on the cutting room floor that maybe were discarded years ago and haven't been brought up again, or that, you know, the low-hanging fruit that 
because of your siloed background, you might not even see. And I enjoy that a lot with just also helping show a bit more of the possibilities and preferable futures we'd like to have with these technologies. For our society, we often have a good idea collectively of the futures that we don't want to have with AI and the futures that we don't want to have with robots. There's endless science fiction books and movies articulating that. But the futures we do want to have with them are a lot more nebulous and they've really yet to be defined. And so moving to the future, I want my work, I aspire for my work to begin to offer this optimism and hope and amazement at the time that we're living in, which I am so grateful to be here and now. And by sort of projecting into the future, I feel like I can bring it a little more close to the present with my work. Mm, yeah, interesting. The whole idea of this potential is so interesting to me. And thinking about it as an architect, maybe you can list a few uses that you see. Architects, as we are planning buildings that will be operating when the achievements that you're working on will be at some further level down the road, really not knowing what those are, but kind of forecasting. What do you see the potential there for architecture and robotics together that people might just want to be aware of now that just start thinking about those and start igniting the get people's on the architecture side gear turning about that? And that could be architectural technologists, that could be actual building architects, it could be teams that combine both of those people. What do you see happening out there in the future? What's happening now, which is very exciting for me, I think, is what's happening in construction robotics. So that is where a lot of the direct, the Venn diagram from advanced robotic systems in AEC are happening right now. Mm -hmm. So, for example, using autonomous diggers to do site work on site. And that's, again, something that can run 24-7, mm -hmm. right? And can begin. So you do your site prep and your site is prepped by the time you get to the site is pretty fantastic. There's a lot of work in architectural robotics that for the past 10 years, 15 years, it's really just been about discovering what we can do with this technology. And the next 10 to 15 years is really beginning to bring that out into industry and apply it in a meat and potatoes way, in a hard, hard engineering way. It's exciting to see it. I don't want to say mature, but I, I'm excited to see it expand outside of architects talking to architects about architecture for the futures that I hope to have. And we, we have environments with robots roaming around. Like hospitals are a great example. There's tug robots that are delivering non-essential towels, things between you know, central storage and individual patients room or warehouses where warehouses are employing more and more people every day. And so for those interactions to be better for everyone involved would also be great. There's already places where it's very normal to work alongside a robot. And just having a better experience, I think, can just have an immediate impact today. I don't know how architects begin to play into that, but I think that there's the design of space. And for a long time, I think the architecture discipline has been focused on the formal design of space, the construction and built environment of that space, but not necessarily the experience of that space beyond the phenomenological phenomenological. So the atmosphere that it's created. And I think in general, it's largely ignored this pervasive, ubiquitous medium of technology that exists in every volumetric inch of every space that we're in now. And there's just a huge potential with learning a bit more of the technology side of things for architects to be able to claim that medium, creative medium, and add that as a layer into how we experience spaces. Can you give some examples of what those are? We hit a little bit of the IoT, Internet of Things, kind of sensors and things like that that are reading that, mm -hmm. but what else is there? Mm -hmm. Trying to think about how crazy versus how pragmatic I should be here. Okay. So Can we do both? Sure. We'll start with pragmatic. Okay. Pragmatic use cases. We have a built environment. We have these office buildings. Office buildings are at 35% occupancy annually. And so how can we begin to occupy that space more efficiently. Okay, well, maybe we have self-reconfiguring spaces that begin to change and adapt as we them for these different things. I think with a world of scarcity that we're marching towards, doing more with less is a thing that reconfigurable environments, reconfigurable reusable spaces is automatically useful for. And then maybe the more delightful things is when you walk into a supermarket, the door automatically opens for you. Mm -hmm. We don't think about that as a sensing robot that welcomes you to a space <laughs> but you know but it is right it has potential to be welcoming 
<laughs> a blast of cold air. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I'm working now in Miami and we get these sporadic rains and how nice would it be if the building that you're in comes and covers you as you're trying to cross from one building mm. to the next, as you cross a courtyard, for example. And that's one of the things I'm thinking about with these cable robots and, and spanning a large courtyard is, can we make shade for someone who looks hot, mm. for example? Mm. You know, the little things that, that begin to take the subtlety and nuance that we're taught to appreciate and maximize for and use technology to add that layer into the experience of space. I think where most architects are met with that is that the idea of the first cost versus the cost over time of a thing. And clients are typically focused on, not all clients, but a lot are focused, especially in the work that I come from, which is public work. It's like, what's the first cost? That's the only thing they care about right now. Somebody else is going to move into administration and they're going to figure out the budget after. They're going to even have to figure out how to maintain the building because that's not even part of the first cost. And then the things that you're talking about are very much not, well, they are a high first cost, but the payback over the potential is quite a different story because you're talking about reconfigurable spatial robots, right? Potentially, you're talking about things that provide value to the humans that occupy that building over time and can be adapted over time to do more or better. I mean, there's a lot of different categories you could check a box there for. It's interesting to me to think about this. And are there examples of people who are doing things like this now that you're aware of? Well, reconfigurable spaces, for example, there's a high-tech solution and a low-tech solution. But a lot of the sensing to know when and how to reconfigure a space is the same, whether you use a robot to move the space or you give instructions to someone right. and it's just a modular kit that is expandable and adjustable kit of parts. Right. What's interesting about robotics that a lot of people don't quite know is just how much of it is really software. The way that the thing moves is one part of it, but you can have software that impacts the world that can modify and manipulate the world by sending a text message to someone and say, hey, can you move that from here to there? Mm -hmm. That's an AI system or a robotic system. <laughs> That's the brain of it without the body. Interesting. So there are ways to, there's, you know, blue sky dreaming about what we would like to see in the world. Mm -hmm. There's always a way today to make it happen, mm. to compromise on certain elements of it. Like if it's really a good idea, there's ways to make it happen. What I see now is in the industry, you start to see experiential design groups, studios within larger firms. So Gensler has an experiential design group. Mm. I think Rockwell has an experiential design group. And a lot of this is like what you said, you know, they're working for retail, they're working for casinos, they're working for uh, restaurants, things where an Instagram photo is gold for those clients. That's where the value proposition is. Mm. We're going to differentiate you from the competition by making these incredible experiences for people that they're going to talk about and share. But this is just the beginning. It's so new that there's not even enough examples for there to begin to see what the potential accurate domain space. I mean, I want to build drawing robots that can draw murals on the sides of buildings, but a pragmatic application of that is actually window cleaning mm. on sides of buildings, where now instead of sending a person up who can risk a fall, you have a crane on the edge of the, over the edge of the high rise that's holding a mop Roomba. Right that's suction cupped to the side of the high rise. And so for me, I find it a boring application, but that's often where bread and butter of a technology is and finding a way to sort of do both, both have the pragmatic and seek the poetic, I think is also what we're trained as architects to do. You know, The building has to stand, it can't leak, it needs to fit the program, but how do we make it special? How do we make it spectacular? How do we create atmosphere? and make it remarkable for the people who exist in it every day. And I see that as a potential for technology, again, to add as a layer into how we experience environments. I think we really could take a chapter from the entertainment playbook. I mean, this is where we see the innovation happening. We talked about Disney earlier. We talked about the Spider-Man robot. But I'm even thinking of, well, we even talked about the Super Bowl, where it's performance. You're watching it happen from afar. Experience that I had was in Las Vegas going to see a Cirque du Soleil show where the stage was a fully articulating robot. I mean, it was. It was part of the performance. The stage would lift, it would become a giant wall. It was an amazing 
performance to watch because I think part of it was just how unexpected it was, not knowing anything about the show before we went to see it. And then when you see it unfolding in front of you, that story that's unfolding in front of you that's fully enabled by this fully articulating stagecraft performance piece robot. And I think it's really interesting now to think back that that was a robot doing that, right? It was like the robotic arm that you're working with, but 10 times bigger because the entire yeah. stage platform- Carrying people. Carrying people. I think the performance was called Ka. I don't know if it's still playing there, but there was like arrows being shot from behind the audience from performers. Not really, but you know, that's what it felt like. And they were hitting this stage. And so these arrows were coming out of the stage instead of going into the stage from underneath. And then acrobats were swinging and playing off of those arrows that were sticking out of the stage because the stage should be gone from being a platform to a wall. So not only is it supporting the people who are the performers, they were swinging and flailing. like It was like the Price is Right Plinko machine of people, right? And they were coming down these arrows and falling and twirling around them, and it was an amazing sight to behold. So I get back to this idea of architects taking a chapter from the entertainment playbook. It affects so many things, video games, movies, entertainment, visual effects, back to, you know, we can steal ideas from them because they have this recurring revenue of people buying tickets to see the things <laughs> or to play the things or to do the things. We should just charge admission to go inside our building so we'll be set. <laughs> I think a place where you see this as well is in airports. So airports, uh, public arts funds mm -hmm. will often have kinetic sculpture that begins, you know, it has a purpose. It's to sometimes it's part of the wayfinding. Mm -hmm. So you'll have something that undulates to guide you or sometimes it's there to calm. Travel can be quite anxious sometimes mm -hmm. as well. And so that's where you start to see these robot art begin to help create atmosphere. And mm. that's a, probably a more tangible everyday way where you actually will come across immersive robotics in your in a day-to-day -day interaction. Right. This episode is sponsored by Confluence. I've invited Randall Stevens, the CEO of Avail, to tell you about it. In 2019, we held the inaugural Confluence event, which was designed to bring together the product managers, the technology developers that are working on the products used daily in the AEC industry and put them in the room with the design technology leaders from the practice side that are actually implementing and using these technologies. The goal isn't to sell anybody anything at these events. The goal is to get a better understanding of what's working, what's not working, and what would be the best products to develop to be implemented in the AECO industry. We've held these three-day confluence events the past four years and attracted over 100 attendees. We have an exciting agenda plan for our annual event in October. The theme this year is going to be focused around AI and machine learning and its applications in the AEC industry. You can learn more about Confluence at getavail.com slash confluence. Well, what are we missing here? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the previous projects that you even have done, more recent history, but before the googly eye. Like, what has been kind of looking backwards and connecting the dots to cable robots now? How have you gotten to there? I feel like I've done every possible thing on every possible robotic arm platform at this point. And so for me, I'm ready for a change. I stumbled into robotics by accident, basically. A lot of the work that I had been doing before my robot taming series was about interaction design and computer-aided design. So making the computer-aided design and manufacturing tools that I wish I had. So I was designing software that let you 3D scan your body and drape really intricate forms in a, using a gestural interface to make jewelry for your body that you can 3D print and it fits you right away because it was built for your body. Mm -hmm. And then taking that out of the computer and actually projecting it onto your body. So now all of a sudden you have a bracelet design projected onto your skin and a computer sensing system that sees how you push, pull, prod, and poke that system to design it just the way you have. And when you close your hand, it gets exported and you can do it. And so the work that I did with industrial robots for the first time, that was, this was a part of my, my dissertation at Carnegie Mellon. The goal was to 
take the system that let me design on the body, but I had to go send it to a 3D printer to then get it back. And I wanted to attach a 3D printing medium onto the robot so I could design it. And then as I'm moving around, the robot is fabricating it onto me. I was doing that as a part of an artist residency at Autodesk. When was this? 2015, quite a long time ago at this point. And they happened to record a video of me just debugging my system. And that hit the internet and took a life of its own. And everyone was just, they had no interest in what I wanted to make and fabricate. They were more interested in seeing this person standing in front of this beast of a machine that looked like a crusher, but decided not to. Mm. And for me, that was a revelation. I was, again, you know, seeing the poetry in this when I was really at it from a pragmatic standpoint, that the motion that this thing has that doesn't look like us, can't talk to us, has no way of really communicating. But just from the way that moves, people began to read animism into it. And what a weird discovery that that's an entire interaction medium that no one had really explored before. Um, not in construction robotics at all. Right. And I think, you know, you go onto Hollywood animators and they're like, yeah, duh, motion expresses, <laughs> you know feelings right. and communication. You look at Wally. Wally has barely has any dialogue. Right. And it's just the motion of beeps and bloops that begin to pull at our heartstrings. Animators have known this for since the nineteen forties and we're just now discovering how to begin to apply that on our physical world. I love that you brought that story up because I even see it in your work now, right? When you post a video, you're standing in front of the machine and it's doing something that is telling the story about this interaction, the work that you're doing. And it's so interesting, but I'm wondering behind the scenes, what is it really like for you? I mean, I can only imagine how much time you're spending on code to figure out how to do that. So can you fill in the gaps of what we see on your posts versus what your research, like how much effort, what's that really like? How are you blazing that trail there? And I'm sure you see better future potential in that as well, but you're doing the hard nitty gritty work right now. It's been a long journey for that. And so every iteration gets better, every iteration gets faster. But every time I use a new machine, it's like a different thing altogether. Mm. If it's a small robot, its presence feels different, it moves different. It might be faster and more nimble and more snake-like versus the big ones that feel more like a lion roaring at you because their motors are so big mm. and they lumber around a bit. And so I try to be inspired by the individual machines that I was using the project in Zurich, basically, I've gotten by having really, really cool friends that have really, really cool equipment. And I operate in a very nimble way, a very quick way. I work a lot in simulation, and it lets me move very, very quickly. And so I can drop in to Zurich while they have a two-week break in projects on their four ceiling hung industrial robots mm. and do a performance with it and not be too disruptive to what's happening there. I was really inspired by walking along Lake Zurich and seeing the swan sort of barrage the tourists beg them for food. And so those upside down robots had the kind of grace and demeanor of those swan neck. And so the personality I rendering into them was trying to replicate the excitement and indifference that the swans can have for you as soon as you run out of bread. But a lot of it is compartmentalizing. So I put on my engineering cap, develop these systems that begin to have continuous feedback between what you're doing and how the robot is moving. And then I try to be more like Jane Goodall, sort of stepping back mm. and observing, observing how I am working with them, observing how others work with them. And then I can go back and tune the brains of the robots to begin to accentuate certain features or certain personality traits like curiosity or boredom or impertinence, yeah. uh, which I find quite fun. Those are all things you can do just with gesture, which is, is pretty wild. And that's the general workflow. My motto is get it working and running as quick as possible and then step back and observe and then learn from that and move again. I don't want to belabor this, but this idea of programming robots to do something versus this interaction model are two completely different things. And I think a lot of professionals and students have learned what it takes to get a laser cutter to do what it needs to do or to get a CNC maybe to do and figuring out the tool paths ahead of time 
and programming the machine to do the task that may be repetitious, it may be one-off, whatever, right? Depends on what the output is versus this idea of interaction. And so can you just speak to the difference there? I mean, because you're basically- There's not much difference. There isn't? Because it's like behavior. It presents itself differently. It's all based on geometry. And maybe again, like I approach this different than a lot of my computer science colleagues. They think in math and I think in geometry. And so I think in tool paths. What I'm doing is basically generating the tool paths as I go. Yeah. And tuning that trajectory to have more expression or less expression based on lots of iterations of doing this, you know. Yeah. The first project that I did in London, bringing Nemus, I got to borrow an industrial robot from a, an assembly line in Birmingham in the UK. And to give it a holiday to come and live in the museum is one job was just to exist and to hang out with people and to be curious and to be bored whenever people were boring around them. Uh-huh. And that has its own, you know, that was an early project. And you can see it has its own like jitter moving around because I was still learning how to generate those tool paths. And it gave it kind of this quirky, squeaky personality, actually, because of the chirping of the motors moving in a jittery way. And then later you see that they're moving more smooth and more serpentine a bit. And a lot of that is because the way that I'm generating the geometry that they're following begins to have those same personality traits. Mm. But I'm just beginning to encode proprioception, the way that our body feels in space, into geometry that I'm feeding to the machines little by little, little by little, just like you would a CNC machine or a 3D printer or a laser cutter. Those are three axis machines that go up, down, left, right, forward, back. And a robot is just a six-axis machine. It's the same exact thing. It looks a lot more complicated than it is. Mm -hmm. But if you understand how to get a CNC router to follow a toolpath, you know how to program an industrial robot. Mm. What the challenge is, is that the knowledge of how to use them is oftentimes locked behind multiple PDFs. And you just have to go and read <laughs> the manual a lot of times yeah. over and over again and then fail a lot of times, and then you reread the manual for the 16th time, and it finally clicks what they should have written for how to do it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to make it understandable. Yeah, And that's definitely getting better now, you know? I think maybe my first experiments with industrial robots has been about 10 years ago, and now there's amazing platforms, $6,000 robots that you can program with Python or Blockly, which is a visual programming language, to begin to do simple tasks. But you're starting to see like robotics companies are waking up that they need to make their stuff easier to use if they want to get more customers. Yeah. Because we've all lost our patience with the bad interfaces. Right. I'm wondering maybe a couple more questions, but and we can wrap up. But one of them is this idea of machines being available. Like you talked about this machine, it went on holiday and it hung out with people in the gallery. How much potential is there? There's probably no way to quantify this, but there are so many machines just lying around just waiting to be used. Going back to the early part of the conversation, that lonely robot, right? It's just sitting there collecting dust in the basement. I mean, do you really see a huge amount of potential? It's the answer's obvious here, I think, but maybe there's something we could tease out of this. With all of the machines that we have at our disposal, the promise of a 3D printer in an architect's office is that it can be building models while you're doing something else, right? While you're doing something maybe more valuable, maybe not, I don't really don't need to place a value on building models or not, but it's the magic of it is not in the speed of it. It's not fast, but it's doing it while you're not doing it, right? The idea that Brian talked about was spot. It's going through the buildings at night so that in the morning you have information to make decisions based on what it captured. And so the kind of untapped potential of all these machines that are sitting around us to do incredible things that we wouldn't have to do just seems obvious. And yet at the same time, it's everywhere, right? I think maybe this is, again, my bias always towards interaction, but I sort of see the role of rapid prototyping machines, 3D printers, and laser cutters, even robots, as one aspect is that they can work longer and do things that you can work in parallel. Mm -hmm. So you begin to optimize for that. But they also begin to remove all the friction from crazy idea you have to getting something out in the physical world. And I think that is really where a lot of the potential where interfaces like this come from. So where the technology is really undervalued, you don't have to think and wonder about something. You can just go try it and know in a couple hours right. whether it was a good idea or not, or learn. You can learn by doing a lot more than before we had this technology. For robots in general, like the future that we are collectively racing towards is that machines will be autonomous, intelligent, and autonomous. And by definition, you know, 
we're going from a paradigm of controlling them directly, programming, please do this, then do that, now do this, thank you, go away, to implicitly programming it. They have the autonomy to decide where and how to move. We're giving up that agency to them. And if I'm sitting on an app and I'm ordering lunch and a delivery robot is going from the kitchen of a restaurant to my office, that's a point A to B. That's a transactional relationship that that robot is doing. But what a lot of robotics companies have ignored completely is that that machine is operating in a public space, in a public environment, and it is interacting with tens or perhaps hundreds of people on its route to achieve a task. Yeah. Robotics has a task-based model yeah. that is the main value set for how well a robot is doing. But as they come out of the lab to live in the wild with us, they also need to be good citizens, good neighbors. They need to be attentive. You know, there's so much of their existence that is outside of that one task that they're doing. And we need to have good interfaces that make that a pleasant and beneficial experience for everyone. It does seem like there's a lot of room for delighting and sensing opportunities to do things like that in that goal-oriented paradigm that robots operate under. It could be, you know, the delivery robot goes and delivers a food and on the way back it picks up garbage that it happens to pass. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. there's this models of then maybe I'm not so annoyed at the fact that it just cut me off on the sidewalk because, oh, it, it picked up those cigarette butts off the sidewalk. Thank you. It all comes back to the vacuum robot and what it can pick up along the, along the way. <laughs> the perfect form right. of technology. Right. <laughs> all right. So my last question, and I think I asked Brian the same question. I mean, everybody who comes on who talks about robots, I have to ask, who is your favorite movie robot of all time? That is very tough. Yeah. <laughs> That's like picking your favorite child. Good thing I only have one. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wally. Yeah. It's Wally. Wally. That's a good one. Nonverbal communication. Yeah. You know, the perfect antihero. There's some incredible stat about that movie. And it's like the first I, 33 minutes, 30, it's some huge number of there's zero dialogue in that film. And to your point about what is able to be communicated through bleeps and bloops and micro movements like there aren't that many moving parts on the robot compared to like a fully you know a, a person right it's very different and it's one of those storytelling triumphs it is absolutely incredible i am right there with you that's a great choice well that's it for today i think i have really enjoyed this conversation i've learned a lot and i am hoping that we can continue this after your next project i'm really excited to hear what you learn with your cable robots and how that can apply to the picture of AEC and the building industry and other ways too. I mean, I know that you're not solely, you have your feet planted in AEC, but that's not the only place your feet are planted, I think. So I'm very much looking forward to where this goes. So thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. An absolute pleasure. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at trxl.co, and I'll talk to you again next week.